The reading is taken from Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, starting at verse 15 through to 23. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God, and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Resurrection Church. My name is, oh, thank you, <laughs> you're there. Uh, my name is John, for those of you uh, who don't know me or haven't been here when I've been here before. I am also from St. Andrew's Church, and I am here today. The reason why Lucas has very little to do this morning is that he invited me to come and share a message with you this morning. I'm always grateful to come to Sai Kung. I enjoy coming and worshiping with you, and I do want to be thankful and express my gratitude again to Lucas for the invitation. And I'll get to be at St. Andrew's next week, so I'm looking forward to hearing him preach uh, next week. And this passage that we have in front of us today, this beautiful passage from uh, the first chapter of Corinthians, is, uh, is one of, it, it is one of the most beautiful passages in all of the Old, uh, New Testament. It is uh, just a very straightforward presentation of the, of the summation of the message of the gospel. It is it's the, the passages like this that remind us of who we are and, and who we believe and what we believe and why we believe. And to use the illustration that Chris referred to earlier of the marathon, it, it is these types of passages that keep us running in the right direction, that keep us on the right path. So I'm looking forward to sharing with you today and, and this beautiful message of the gospel of Jesus. And so please join me in prayer as we begin. Father, we thank you for these words that the Apostle Paul has delivered to the church in Colossae. We thank you that we can read them today and they still resonate loudly across history. And they give us encouragement and strength and faith. And so today, Father, as we hear what your Spirit has to say to us, now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Now there's an interesting story 
about Leonardo da Vinci's painting of The Last Supper, which arguably is one of his, if not his most famous work. The painting itself took almost three years to complete, and that was partially because I think da Vinci was hoping that it would be something of his masterwork, a masterpiece, but also uh, reportedly <laughs> he had a tendency to procrastinate as well, so it, it took a while. But as he was nearing the completion of The Last Supper, and prior to actually unveiling this painting to the public, da Vinci invited one of his close friends to come and to view the painting and to give him you know, any comments because he valued this friend's opinion very highly. And so the friend came and obviously was very impressed by this work that da Vinci had created and he was gushing in his praise and telling da Vinci how great this piece is. And then the friend seized upon one interesting detail in this large portrait of Jesus and his disciples at the Last Supper. And apparently, as the story goes, he told da Vinci this, the cup in Jesus' hand is especially beautiful with glimmering, precious jewels wrapped in ornate, polished gold. This was truly a cup that would be worthy Touch the lips of Jesus. Now, for those of you who may not be quite as familiar with the painting, you may not realize that in the painting of the Last Supper, Jesus is not holding a cup. <laughs> so, so what happened? Well, as the story goes, after the friend left, da Vinci set about painting out the cup from Jesus' hand, instead replacing it with an open hand, one that was outstretched and inviting. And when this friend later saw the finished painting, the finished work, he was surprised. And he asked da Vinci, why would you remove such a beautiful and elegant, you know, accent piece of this painting? And da Vinci's response was simply this, nothing must distract from the figure of Christ. In the same way that da Vinci wanted his focus in his painting to be on Jesus and Jesus alone, the Apostle Paul here, writing to the believers in Colossae, wants first and foremost to direct their attention on Jesus' supreme importance to their faith. There's just a few opening remarks of greeting and encouragement that you looked at last week, and then Paul immediately launches into this description of the lordship and the divinity of Christ, reminding his listeners of how Jesus had reconciled them to God. And this brings up a point that I want us to remember as we look at this passage. I think it's helpful for us to keep in mind as we read it some 2,000 years after it was written. You know, Paul and the others that contributed writings to our New Testament, they were not sitting down to create uh, isolated theological textbooks. They were not thinking, you know, some 2,000 years from now, there's a group of people that are going to be studying these documents and, and sifting through the theological nuances that are found within. No, they were writing 
personal correspondence, letters to churches, to people, to other believers, to encourage them, to correct them, sometimes even to chastise them. They referred to specific situations that were happening at the time. And these letters were intended to be read aloud as the churches, as the congregations gathered together in worship. And most of the time, these letters were then passed along to other congregations and to other churches for their encouragement and edification. Now in this case, in the letter to Colossians, Paul is addressing a church that he hasn't yet personally visited, but he is connected to them with a friend and fellow worker, Epaphras, who is mentioned in the first verses of the chapter. Now, as the letter goes on, and as you look through this in the coming weeks, you will notice some of the things that Paul addresses, topics like false teaching, uh, observing Jewish traditions and rules, avoiding sinful behaviors, you know, how to conduct proper human relationships, how to be dedicated as a people of prayer and other things. So it's important for him right here at the very beginning to establish the foundational understanding of the supremacy of Christ that is behind everything else that he's going to tell them in this letter. So I hope after today, as you continue to go through the epistle to the Colossians, you will keep that in mind as you pay attention and see how Paul weaves this idea of the supremacy of Christ through the different instructions that he gives later in the letter. And as I mentioned before, this passage is one of the pinnacle passages in the New Testament, particularly in reference to the description here we find of Christ. It represents what we call a high Christology. That means a very high view of the nature of Christ himself in regards to his divinity as God. And the first half of the text that we heard read today, verses 15 through 20, are actually poetic in form. And in fact, what most scholars believe that Paul has done here is inserted the words of a familiar early church hymn or maybe a piece of poetic literature that they used in worship. So, for example, it would be like if I was preaching about Jesus' sacrificial death and, and our proper response to it, and in the middle of the sermon I made this statement, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Now you can see how that would carry much more emotional weight to you as a listener and resonate with you more loudly than if I just simply said, Jesus died for my sins. Right? So Paul knows this letter is going to be read aloud. He knows the congregation is going to hear this as part of their worship. So here he uses language that they were probably already familiar with. And he uses this poetic text to summarize the foundational principles of our Christian faith. And among the many, many, many aspects that we could dissect and look at today, I want us to just keep our focus on the one main point that Paul is emphasizing. And then I'm going to ask two questions that spiral off of that. First and foremost, Christ, Jesus Christ himself, is fully divine and fully God. 
And then the two questions are, what does that mean for us as a collective body of believers called the church? And what are the implications for us as individual believers, as individual Christians? So listen again to verses 15 through 17 and then also verse 19. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Now, this probably sounds familiar because this idea that Jesus was fully and completely a representative of God is a recurring theme with Paul. In Philippians, he writes, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. And in his second letter to the Corinthians, he refers to the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. It's familiar language that Paul has used before. And affirmations like this of Jesus' full divinity, his equality with God, if you think about it, would have been especially remarkable to the early listeners hearing this in Colossians, in Colossae and other places, when we consider that Paul is writing about a person that some 30 or so years earlier had been put to death by crucifixion on a Roman cross. The early church was wrestling with and still trying to reconcile how the, this person that they knew, Jesus of Nazareth, how he was one and the same with the Yahweh God that they had grown up learning about from their Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And quite honestly, that's still challenging for us as believers today, isn't it? To try and reconcile that reality. So Paul says Christ is the image of the invisible God and the fullness of God dwelled in him. Now, think about that for a minute. How exactly can we have an image of something that is invisible? It sounds like it doesn't make any sense. Well, it has to do with how the ancient Greeks defined and understood the idea and the word image. And when we think of an image, we typically think of a, of a picture, a photograph, a painting, you know, a copy of the real thing. But in Greek philosophy, the image of a thing was the thing itself. It was not a separate copy. So you can think of it like this, that the image was something like manifestation. So Christ is the image of God means that Christ is the manifestation of God. Christ is the image of God means that Christ and God are the same. So then he says the fullness or the completion of God lives in Jesus. And here, part of what Paul is doing is he's countering some of the early false teachings that said, well, Jesus was just 
a ghost or a spirit, and he only appeared to be a human being to walk among us. Or some would say, well, God somehow possessed this human man named Jesus just for a while while he walked on the earth. No, 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 no. That is exactly what Paul is trying to counter here. You see, in Jesus, we come face to face with God himself. Jesus is both God's representative and God's representation. Now you may recall Genesis chapter 1 that humanity is made in the image of God, but that is different than what Paul is saying here that Jesus is the image of God. He is the perfect, exact, and only image of God. This is really no different than what Jesus claimed about himself. In John chapter 14, this is Jesus having a heart-to-heart conversation with his disciples there at the Last Supper, his last meal with them before his death. And Jesus says, If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip said, Lord, just show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Ah, yes. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, the image. You have seen God himself this manifestation of God the Father found in Jesus. And so in this passage in Colossians, Paul gives us a few other links to kind of reinforce this connection that Jesus is divinity. Jesus is God himself. He says, in him all things were created, all things have been created through him and for him. And I suppose at the time, you know, every good little Jewish boy and girl would have been asked, Uh, If they were asked to recite the opening lines of the Torah, they would have been able to say, oh yes, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So here for Paul to directly connect Jesus as the divine creator was an unmistakable identification of Jesus with God and as God. And he says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, Christ being before all things is both a chronological and a hierarchical distinction. And what I mean by that is this. Christ is before all things in time. So again, connecting him with the creator God of Genesis. And Christ is before all things in terms of rank or authority. And as God... All of creation has to answer to him, right? So Christ is both the creator and Lord of all things. And this phrase, in him all things hold together, I love this. Because this is a great statement about the continual active presence of God through Christ in our world. You know, God did not just set the world in motion and then back off and just kind of watch what happens. You know, contrary to that old Bette Midler song, 
Uh, God is not watching us from a distance. No, God is actually involved through Christ, sustaining and holding us together, intimately, personally involved in each of our lives. Our very existence is found in Christ. He is our purpose. He is our rhyme, our reason for even living. Now I know what you're thinking. You're asking yourself, all right, how does that work? How how does this God in a human body, you know, this divine omniscient being crammed into mortal flesh, how, how does that all work? Well, I'm here this morning to answer that question for you with a very simple and definitive answer. I don't know. And if anybody tells you that they have an answer to that question, they're either lying or simply making something up. (laughs) It is one of the great mysteries of God's nature that he was able to be born as a tiny human baby boy. Here I like to quote the genie from the old animated Aladdin. You remember what he said? He said, phenomenal cosmic powers, itty-bitty living space, right? God crams all of his omniscience into this little tiny person, this little tiny human being. And God walked the earth that he created. God lived among the beings he created, Now, I will let you in on a little secret here. Even the Apostle Paul didn't have an answer to that question. He writes uh, in his first letter to Timothy, he says this, Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And here's the great mystery. He appeared in the flesh was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, and was taken up in glory. So even Paul says, this is a great mystery. But ultimately, what Paul is presenting us here in this passage with is a profound reality. This poetic hymn section that he's inserted here shows us exactly what Paul wants us to see. And that is, if you want to know God, you must get to know Jesus. Jesus shows us completely who God is. He is creator, sustainer, and also later he says redeemer. Jesus shows us what God is like, He is a God of love and of grace towards all of his creation. And Jesus shows us what God does. He humbly gives himself up as a sacrifice in order to restore that relationship between himself and his creation. So then this morning we ask the question, what are the implications for us as a community of believers, as a church, and for us as individual believers, as followers of Christ? So first, let's address the church. Verse 18, Paul says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, 
and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. As Christ has supreme authority over all creation, so too does he have authority over the church. And the church is described here, as Paul does in other places, as the body of Christ. This body metaphor is wonderful. It is a beautiful way of understanding lots of significant things about the church. The church is a living and interconnected organism. Members are vitally linked one to another. The church is the vessel and the means through which Christ continues to do his work in the world. And the church is connected, as the head is connected to the body, the church is connected with Christ in a very real and in a very intimate way. So for Christ to be the head of the church, that means he is both its leader and its purpose. Without Christ, there would be no church. The church exists because of Christ, the church exists for Christ, and the church exists in Christ. Now, unfortunately, because of our sinful nature, many people see it like this. The church exists because of my financial giving. The church exists for my personal edification, and the church exists in my power and authority. You see, for Christ to truly be the head of the church, the church cannot exist simply for its members or for its own institutional survival. But the church must exist, as Paul says here, so that in everything Christ may be supreme. So in other words, our purpose as congregations of faith is to make Christ known to those who do not know him, to praise his name in worship, and to do God's work of reconciliation in our world today. And this is a great evaluative tool, right? As we examine the things that we do as congregations and as body of believers, we can ask the question, are there any of da Vinci's cups in our church's portrait of the Last Supper? Are there any distractions that keep us from fulfilling the mission that Christ has called us to? Now, I've been involved with quite a number of churches throughout my lifetime, and I will tell you this. Every church has its Da Vinci Cups. Every church has distractions. Some may be obvious. Some may be hidden. Some may be personal or institutional traditions or sacred cows. Or some may just be legacy procedures or policies that no one has bothered to address. But the Da Vinci Cups are there. And it's important for us to kind of regularly evaluate and examine what we do. And and not be afraid to deal with things that distract us as a congregation from our purpose of proclaiming and exalting Christ above all else. And then what about our personal response? Our personal response to Christ's supremacy, his divinity. How do we respond as individual believers and 
and as Christians in our world. Well, after this poetic section that Paul has written here, he makes a few remarks in verses 22 and 20, 20, 21 and 22. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. You see, the weight of sin has broken our relationship with God. We were estranged, aliens, even hostile to God. And being enemies in our minds, as he says here, it doesn't mean simply that, oh, we thought bad thoughts about God or maybe we cursed him behind his back. No, when we are out of proper relationship with our Father, Creator, God, our whole lives are affected. Thoughts are connected to behavior. Sin starts in the mind and then manifests itself in our actions. You know, a broken mind sees evil as good. It manifests fear. It produces suspicion. It produces selfishness. But reconciliation, restoration with God, it changes all of that. Reconciliation removes those barriers between us and God, that sin that separates us. And that restoration is done by the work of Christ, his physical death and resurrection. Paul uses a phrase here. He says, without blemish. And by saying that, he's not suggesting at all that somehow Christians become perfect human beings without any flaws or any sins, right? Because we all know that's not true, isn't it? (laughs) But this language, without blemish, It's something that was lifted out of the institution of sacrifice in the Old Testament. So an animal that would be brought to be used as a sacrifice to God would have to be without blemish. No broken bones, no scars, no wounds, no flaws, no other abnormalities. And when a man brought this animal and presented it as a sacrifice, he would lay his hands on the animal in order to identify himself with it, symbolically expressing his desire to also be without blemish. And so in Christ's literal and physical sacrifice, he has done the same thing. He has taken on our sins. He is that sacrificial animal. And by identifying with him, we also become blameless. And as, Christ, uh, as Paul says here, we become free from accusation. And our response, Paul says in verse 23, is to continue in faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope that you have in the gospel. So our responsibility then is just like I suggested as, as uh, what we should do as a church, to consider personally. What are the Da Vinci Cups in my life that keep me from following Christ fully? What distracts me from daily focusing on Christ and living out the hope that we proclaim? How about my career or my family or my life ambitions? Do they help or do they hinder my relationship with Christ? Are there any 
besetting sins or selfish desires or ungodly situations in my life that I need to address in a tangible way? Are there personal conflicts, maybe relational issues that hinder my ability to share the good news of Christ with others? See, each of us has been called individually to present a portrait of Christ to our world, whatever that world may be, our workplaces, our schools, our families. And what does that picture look like? Is it incomplete? Does it fully represent the grace and love that we received? Are there da Vinci cups in our personal pictures of Christ that distract others from seeing the work of Christ in us? Now, I suggested at the beginning that's important for us to, as Christians to return to these passages, that they are what establishes us and keeps us moving in the right direction, these foundational components of our faith. And one additional reason is that it refocuses our attention on Christ. And when we do that, those da Vinci cups in our lives become much more obvious. Right? We can see them a lot better. And passages like this encourage us, they challenge us, because so much of our lives are consumed by uh, things that just weigh us down, that, that, uh, that discourage us, that make us weary, you know, that steal our joy. And so we return to passages like this to refocus our attention on the hope held out in the gospel, as Paul mentions here. And especially on a day like today, when later we're going to celebrate communion together, it's passages like this that spur us on to that gratitude that we should have when we approach the communion table, that humility and appreciation for what Christ has done for us. But there is a, a bit of a danger in that passages like this and others can become maybe a little too familiar to us if we've been Christians for any amount of time. And I don't know about you, but personally I find it kind of hard to imagine how those first believers in Colossae, how this would have you know, rested on their ears as they heard these words. So, in something of an attempt to try and recreate that experience of these early believers and maybe kind of connect with some of the emotional residents of hearing great truths like this read aloud in worship for the first time, what I'm going to do is I'm going to close this morning by reading a short piece of prose that I'm pretty confident that you've never heard before because it was written by a man that I'm almost certain that you've never heard before either. It's from a French uh, preacher and theologian. His name was Jean-Baptiste Henri Lacordaire. He lived in the 1800s, so the language is a, a little bit dated, but I think you'll be able to understand. And the spirit and sentiment of, of Lacordaire's piece is very similar in tone and message as to what Paul has given us here in Colossians 1. Now, Le Cordaire was known as an outstanding orator, so the language in this piece is just evocative and emotive and, and very engaging. So as we conclude this morning, I want you to just take a moment and imagine that you are among the early believers hearing these profound truths about Christ for the very first time as you hear it in these words from Le Cordaire. There is a man whose tomb is guarded by love. There is a man whose sepulcher is not only glorious as a prophet declared, but whose sepulcher is loved. 
There is a man whose ashes, after 18 centuries, have not grown cold, who daily lives again in the thoughts of an innumerable multitude of men, who is visited in his cradle by shepherds and by kings, who vie with each other in bringing him gold and frankincense and myrrh. There is a man whose steps are unweariedly retrodden by a large portion of mankind, and who, although no longer present, is followed by that throng in all the scenes of his bygone pilgrimage, upon the knees of his mother, by the borders of the lakes, to the tops of the mountains, in the byways of the valleys, under the shade of the olive trees, and in the still solitude of the deserts. There is a man whose every word still vibrates and produces more than love, produces virtues fructifying in love. There is a man who 18 centuries ago was nailed to a gibbet and whom millions of adorers daily detach from this throne of his suffering and kneeling before him, prostrating themselves as low as they can without shame. There, upon the earth, they kiss his bleeding feet with unspeakable ardor. There is a man who was scourged, killed, crucified, whom an ineffable passion raises from dead and infamy and exalts to the glory of love unfailing which finds in him peace, honor, joy, and even ecstasy. There is a man pursued in his sufferings and in his tomb by undying hatred and who, demanding apostles and martyrs from all posterity, finds apostles and martyrs in all generations. There is a man, and only one, who has founded his love upon earth, and that man is thyself, O Jesus, who has been pleased to baptize me, to anoint me, to consecrate me in thy love, and whose name alone now opens my very heart and draws from it those accents which overpower me and raise me above myself. Church, there is a man who is God, whom we worship, who we serve, and who we proclaim to the world. His name is Jesus. And as we come to his table later in our service, may we truly give thanks for who he is and for what he has done. And if you do not know this man, please it would be our honor and privilege to introduce you to him this morning. Let's pray together. Father God, we are truly grateful to be your church and humbled by the grace and mercy that you pour out on us daily. As we look at these beautiful passages from Scripture that remind us of the position, the supremacy, the divinity of Christ. May we be humbled. May we be thankful. May we be challenged to share this beautiful message, to proclaim it to those who do not know. And Father, as we come to your table this morning, may our hearts be convicted of those sins in our lives that we haven't confessed. And maybe we challenge to move forward in a fresh and new way with your Spirit enabling us. And so, God, this morning we are thankful. 
We're thankful for Jesus the Christ in whom all things find their end, in whom all of heaven and earth worships and praises. And it is in his mighty name and through the power of the Holy Spirit that sustains us that I pray. Amen.